let's pass a measure, some laws, let's stop subsidies, let's crank up tax credits, let's do things that we know would work that are going to be painful, but would get us closer to where we need to be. Welcome back, everybody. Rich Baker, founder of Collect Responsibility, here today with another episode of the Sustainable Master Podcast. In this episode, I'm extremely honored to be joined by Josh Horton, who's the Research Director at the Climate Overshoot Commission and Senior Program Fellow for Solar and Geoengineering at the Harvard Kennedy School. Josh, thank you very much for taking the time. Great to have you here. As a starting point, it'd be really great for you to introduce yourself and a bit of the work that you've been doing. Yeah, as you said, I, I'm my one of my current positions is the Research Director uh, for the Secretariat of, of the Overshoot Commission. And the purpose of the commission is basically to confront the fact that we're very likely now to exceed the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. And the commission is writing a report that will be released September 14th in New York that will lay out a vision for how the world might approach overshoot once, you know, if it and if, if it happens and, and when it happens. If that happens, what's the size and scope of the challenge that overshoot presents? So for me and for people that I work with, overshoot is very simply this idea of, of reaching the 1.5 limit mm-hmm. and going beyond it. It's a situation uh, that would be defined by both the magnitude of overshoot, how high mm-hmm. above 1.5 you're going, and the duration of overshoot, how long exceeding 1.5 lasts. Okay. Um, it, and so there's a wide variety of sort of overshoot scenarios one could imagine. I mm-hmm. think ask. Uh, for us and for people who are concerned about this is first of all, you know, for me personally to accept that there will be some overshoot because that's just sort of the math. Um, But given that it's going to take place, do everything we can to limit the duration uh, and the magnitude of the overshoot using emissions reductions or turbocharging emissions cuts and CDR, and then trying to minimize the harms that will unavoidably occur during overshoot. Yeah, and I remember when the IPCC report came out right after Paris, where they showed the charts of, you know, what are the most likely outcomes from 1.5, then 1.5 to 2, 2 to 2.5, then up to past 4. And um, So I kind of understood, like, at that time, we knew the various probabilities of that ranges. And I, my question to you is, then, do is there an idea about the if there's a return back, like an assumption, was there ever discussion around, okay, if we go to 2 degrees, how long it would take to come back? I think... I think what I've seen is that if, if we were to stick current uh, NDCs under mm-hmm. pairs, actually determine contributions, we hit about 2.3 degrees. The thinking, how we would sort of come back after that, I think we know some tools that could get us on the right on the, on the the right track and could help us claw back if we get in a bad situation. But exactly yep. what the vectors would be, I think it's it's a, sort of a fool's errand to try to predict exactly yeah. what we have to do because we're in sort of unknown territory. Do you think that leaders are really ready for the challenges of going up that curve? And uh, The answer is no, from my perspective, but it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, I think, you know, as we all know, this is sort of the world's greatest or worst collective action problem. It's no surprise because, I mean, we're talking about making sacrifices today that will largely benefit the future, that will benefit other people in other countries. And, yeah. uh, one could call that selfish, and I guess it is in some regard, but it's entirely understandable too. So with that as a backdrop, what, can you speak to the mission vision of the Overshoot Commission itself? Without getting into too much detail, I think that so there's sort of two different tasks. There's reducing risk and there's managing risk. For yeah. reducing risk, there's a couple of big sort of policy buckets. Obviously, the first one is to cut emission, decarbonize. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are some ways to accelerate it to create more incentives. The second element of the sort of the reduced risk 
is uh, what's called carbon dioxide re removal. These are these mm. new technologies that aren't at scale at all yet. They still exist, but they're very expensive and, and there's no certainty they will be scaled up at the level that they could be used. But the, the promise is that yeah. machines direct air capture machines, which scrub CO2 out of the atmosphere, uh, backs bioenergy carbon capture and storage, which sort of uh, burns biomass and then takes the CO2 that biomass captured and puts it underground. Other kinds of ideas can be scaled up and can actually reduce, ultimately, concentration of CO2 uh, levels in the atmosphere. Uh, that's the first couple of big options that would help to reduce risks. And then you're going to have some risks that are going to happen anyway, that are going to material. And those a couple of other sort of options may require options uh, options one is adaptation we all know about adaptation but right. you know, we, we know we're not doing nearly enough of it that there's this huge finance gap we just had a meeting in paris so we're going to talk about ways to sort of supercharge adaptation efforts including the finance dimension of this how can we think differently about adaptation in ways that would actually make a difference on the ground the, the fourth and final then element the second of the risk management approaches could be something like solar geoengineering, which mm. again, we're not advocating doing, but right. it's an idea worthy of exploration. So the, the commission is seeking to sort of present a strategy that would in, you know, integrate these four approaches in various ways, in a way that's sort of mutually reinforcing, forward-looking, uh, seeks ultimately to limit the magnitude and duration of overshoot and ultimately eliminated the fourth one is like that's the, the one we don't want to go to are the first two ones that you find personally or through this commission like do you see as being more open or is there still a lot of resistance to even talking about this because we've even gone through 1.5 yet well i think there's widespread acceptance of the need to cut emissions and i think yeah. there's a lot of support for that because i think you see now that emissions can be reduced sometimes in ways that are profitable it can create jobs it's not simply all cost adaptation i think it, it's kind of a no-brainer i don't know anybody who opposes that now one of the issues of adaptation is that the benefits of doing adaptation are typically local uh, by experience mm -hmm. so there's a hesitation to spend a lot of money on adaptation that will help countries around the world and not your right. own country, um, right. which is right. unfortunate but it's understandable so we need to figure out ways to sort of overcome that finance gap what what is geoengineering there's been a lot of conversations some news about it but from your perspective and your work experience what does it mean to to the layman who might be watching this so geoengineering uh or i guess more properly solar geoengineering uh this is uh, the idea of basically reflecting a small portion of sunlight coming in from space to the earth to send it back to space to mm. slightly reduce temperatures on, on earth. Yeah. Uh, the, the leading technology that's most researched in this space is called stratospheric aerosol injection. It, it would basically involve right. each of aircraft going up into the lower uh, stratosphere, releasing particles, aerosols in mm. fairly small amounts. You, not, you know, you wouldn't see any, any difference, but enough right. to reflect, they would spread globally and would yeah. reflect a tiny fraction of sunlight back to space. And the idea is that that would compensate imperfectly for the warming uh, added uh, by the sort of augmented greenhouse effect. Mm -hmm. It would be quite effective, but it would entail all kinds of, of physical risks and sociopolitical risks. Is it scary that we would use it or is it scary that we'd let ourselves go to that point where we need it? It's both. You know, personally, 
the idea is scary to those who've never encountered it because mm -hmm. you're talking about replicate the effects of large volcanic explosions. The way to think about it is, is a risk-risk framing. Think about geoengineering. Um, you don't want to compare. We have models that will tell us, well, this a geoengineered world will look like this. Right. And then you'd say, well, they compare that to today or to pre-industrial, and it looks a lot worse. Mm -hmm. But that's not the proper comparison. Right. Comparison is that future world without geoengineering. Right. Uh, those are the things that you ought to be comparing. Mm -hmm. uh, and over and over and over again, it looks the models tell us the world, a future world with geoengineering under certain conditions is much more like the pre-industrial world uh, that we are accustomed to than a world without geoengineering. There's an immense reduction of harms. We don't have any great choices left. We have some difficult choices to be made. And based on what you said, I'd almost say like this is break glass in case of emergency use. It's fair, but and, I, and I'd sort of revise it a bit to say that there's not going to be an emergency. That's not going to happen. I think that, you know, there are going to be lots of little events and there's sort of a accumulation yeah. of awful news. Um, so I, I think we don't want to think about geoengineering as something that we can pull off the shelf during a mm -hmm. crisis. The challenge is you're going to have to think about geoengineering in the future, not as something that it becomes obvious when you have to do it, but will have to be decided upon under uncertainty. Getting worse, getting worse, getting worse. At what point should we? And it's never going to be a good answer. I mean, uh, it's going to depend upon sort of the aggregate harms that are occurring. And that makes it more difficult. Who's best placed to make that decision? And what's the balance that they would have to consider? Yeah, I think the best you could do and what you would want would be to get key countries you know, all the big countries either agreeing or tacitly agreeing, you know, not opposing. Okay. okay. Uh, maybe that's a pipe dream, but maybe it's not. Uh, if things get bad enough, I think we shouldn't dismiss that possibility, but it doesn't mean it would be easy to achieve. You mentioned this, like it's something that you hope is never used, but you, you've clearly been in a long time. You're clearly passionate. You've, you've done a lot of work. Like what, what brought you into climate or into the, the space of geoengineering to begin with? I, I went to Johns Hopkins. I got a PhD in political science there, and I hmm. focused a lot on international environmental politics, but also just sort of geopolitics in general. At the end of my time there, down in Baltimore, I, I, I was really burned out. I didn't want to do any more academia. I, I said, I, I can't. And yeah. so I'm taking a job uh, uh, consulting on clean energy stuff, mm. you know, solar, smart grid. Uh, and I ran across somewhere, somehow, you know, an article about geoengineering back in the late 2000s. Got me thinking about, well, what would this mean? How could this ever work? And what would it mean for countries? How could they cooperate? Is that even possible? It just sort of got me very curious about it. And I, I thought a lot about the politics of this and the, the international politics of this and just got more and more interested as not really as an advocate. I mean, you don't really come across many advocates fully, but as an advocate of more research, just wanting right. to sort of think more carefully through what this would look like, if it's even possible. Yeah. What was your frame of mind when you said geoengineering is something that I want to spend my time on? Well, it's very much what it is today, which is that we're not on the right track. We have lots of cool, interesting ideas, many of which work, but they're not being deployed at nearly the rate they need to be deployed. And so clearly the trajectory that we were on and are on is not a good one. So we need to sort of be creative and look elsewhere in addition to sort of doubling down on what we're already doing, but yeah. it seems to be very difficult to do though. So it, it was sort of based on kind of a pessimistic outlook on, on where things were headed and, and the promise of relying just on more solar, wind, renewables, efficiency, the, the usual you know, things, which again, are, are, are integral to this, but yeah. aren't happening fast enough. That was my perspective initially. And I think okay. it, it still is to some extent. I think there has been progress. I think it's one that you'd be foolish to ignore the, the immense sort of cost reductions in solar and wind, yeah. Yeah. things like the IRA in the US, 
things mm -hmm. like uh, you know, the Green New Deal, what's coming out of Europe, that, that there is significant progress, but it's yeah. just, we dug ourselves a hole that's so deep collectively that it may not be enough. You know, I've generally viewed that a lot of the things that we talk about with climate, we often rely on technology and innovation will save us. We don't need to do anything now because there'll be an answer later. And I'm curious in this space that you, that you're, that you're working in, is that something that you see a lot of people just kind of like deferring? Well, we always have this option, so we don't have to do anything up front. And is, is that the risk that you want to like avoid? Or is this actually you're building the backstop that you're comfortable with? One uh, criticism of geoengineering has been that it, it would it sort of feeds into that kind of mentality mm -hmm. that it provides an excuse. I think we hardly need an, another excuse. I do think we need a lot of technological breakthroughs. I think you know I think we need to really clamp down on fossil fuels. I, I think on the companies on, on the way they operate on their stranglehold on sort of the political economy. These are going to be big, big policy initiatives at national, international levels that really begin yes. to restructure the economy, to decarbonize the economy in a meaningful right. way. And those are going to you know, upset vested interests. They will cost money. They will do all the things that you know, uh, have prevented us from doing them so far. You yeah. Know, like yeah. We, okay, we can do things, not individually, but let's pass some measures, some laws. Let's stop subsidies. Well, let's crank up tax credits. Let's do things that we know would work that are going to be painful, but that obviously would get us closer to where we need to be. So maybe it's an excuse in that sense, or could be. You had an IPE background. You didn't have an engineering background. What, what's the skill set that you've been developing to learn about geoengineering as a non-engineer? So no, I'm not an engineer by any stretch. I'm not even tech, uh, tech savvy. I, I have a basic understanding of the science. But one of the things about geoengineering is that it's actually not very complicated. It doesn't require a lot of engineering or scientific knowledge uh, to understand what geoengineering would do. Now, it requires a lot of scientific knowledge to understand what the consequences could be and how they could affect climate be what the climate right. impacts uh i have you know uh, also a general sense of that but i have a lot of colleagues who know much more than i do who i rely on whose stuff i read and who's i ask questions to all the time who who can keep me sort of grounded in what what the reality is in terms of what science can tell us i guess one other point to make is that you know the technical simplicity and the relative inexpensive nature of geoengineering what it looks like is not always a good thing makes it look as though lots of different actors could go out and do this so on the one hand, it looks like it'd be easy to do. On the other hand, it'd be really easy to do. A couple more questions for you. It's very easy to get down, doom and gloom, climate change, we're going to overshoot, whatever it may be. On a personal level, what, what keeps you focused on mission? The problem's not going to go away. We, we can wish it away. It's not going anywhere. I, I have you know, an eight-year-old son. He'll be living in this world. Is I know lots of kids. I'm a soccer coach. Like I, they'll be living in this world. Uh, just you know, giving up on it's not going to actually help matters. The people that I talk to and run across, friends and colleagues and neighbors, and when I tell them what I'm working on these days, it typically you know they, it makes them excited. Uh, like oh, so you're trying to you know we need something. In some sense, we're kind of counting on you and your colleagues to to do something, come up with new ideas to help us get out of this mess. It's kind of uh, gratifying, or at least provide some motivation to keep doing it. All right, last question. But you're talking to young professionals, you're talking to students, and they view climate as their mission. What what are some things that they should pay attention to, skill sets that they should gather? Don't be averse to taking risks in your career. If something mm -hmm. seems really interesting, really compelling, uh, and you're still young, 
consider making that leap because it, it you really it, it could turn out to be something it could lead to new ideas it could get you jazzed in a way that maybe you 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 were sort of you're lacking enthusiasm otherwise and new ideas novel ideas technologies or practices or policy measures uh we're in desperate need of these things and uh i think where we are demonstrates the need for those things mm -hmm. so both taking unconventional paths and Getting involved in thinking, brainstorming, unconventional solutions can be extremely helpful for the world and for yeah. you. Uh, yeah. I don't know what those things would be. That's your job to sort of figure out. But we are in desperate need of new big ideas that can shake things up. And uh, that's where sort of young professionals excel.